Welcome to this episode of our Litigation Trending Spotlight on Class Action podcast mini-series. My name is Tim West and I'm a partner in Astrid's London Dispute Resolution Practice. In this episode, we are looking down under and talking with Nick Mavrakis of our Sydney office, where Nick is a partner specialising in class actions. As most of our listeners will know, Australia has a really premature and well-developed class action regime where class actions have been a mainstay of the litigation landscape for the best part of a generation. And it's often seen behind the US as the leading class action jurisdiction in the world. So practitioners and clients do tend to try and keep abreast of the trends emerging in the Australian market, as they're often a harbinger of things to come uh, in England and Wales. And that's particularly the case since increasingly funders and some claimant firms have a foothold in both jurisdictions and look to replicate claims and their approach to litigation. And as we'll cover today, though, the, the traffic isn't all one way, with certain trends being exported from the UK to the Australian market, particularly in recent times, the proliferation of database claims. To that end, I'm also joined by John Gale, who's a partner in Ashurst London Suit Resolution team, whose practice focuses on defending group claims. So welcome, John and Nick. Good to have you both here. Nick, uh, let's start with you. What, what do you think are the top trends in the Australian market that, that we should be alive to in the UK? Thank you, Tim, and uh, thank you, John. Uh, the, the trends, as you may know, class actions were introduced into the Australian uh, jurisdiction almost 30 years ago. So there's a lot of the issues have been jurisprudential issues have been worked through and there's a well-settled practice um, around the launching of class actions and the litigation funding environment and it's a very sophisticated plaintiff's um, bar that launches these proceedings and it's a very sophisticated and profitable at times uh, litigation funding environment who, who really come together to try and uh, develop claims that are highly profitable and remunerative to themselves from both a legal fees perspective and a funding perspective. And so we've seen over the years the proliferation of shareholder class actions. Uh, we've seen the proliferation of pharmaceutical class actions, product liability um, and uh, banking type financial services disputes and many more consumer claims um, arising out of the auto industry and um, other such industries. And there is a very um, well-trodden path in a book build process by which uh, litigation funders um, and the plaintiff law firms launch a class action. They, they rely upon high levels of publicity and, and it is a, an opt-out an opt regime so that the moment they launch proceedings, um, all the group members are part of that class action. And there is, unlike in the US, that there is no need to certify. Um, once you launch, then you're seized of jurisdiction and you are required um, as a defendant to defend those proceedings. And so what we have seen more recently is a pr proliferation of data breach claims and privacy breach claims. We see that being an, a fertile area um, of exposure, particularly as we see cyber attacks and ransomware attacks around the world and it is indiscriminate in nature 
in terms of which industries it um, it will be um, subjected to. Yeah, great. There's a, a lot a lot to get into there. I mean, picking up on one of the the, the, the first things you mentioned, securities class actions. That that's an area in particular where the UK market is looking to Australia, particularly in relation to the vexed question of reliance um, and how the Australian courts have approached that issue. I mean, it, it's it's one of the, I'd say one of the key battlegrounds in UK securities class actions at the moment uh, with the statutory framework that we've got uh, under FUSMA requiring claimants to establish that, that they placed reasonable reliance on the misleading statement or admission from, from a published information uh, when deciding to make their investment decision. And, and obviously establishing reliance can be highly costly in proceedings and claimants potentially face a heavy evidential and disclosure burden in order to establish the, the basis of, of their investment decisions and therefore reliance. And I mean, that's obviously what we've got here is obviously a pretty different statutory framework to the position as I understand it in Australia, but perhaps you could briefly outline how the Australian courts have approached uh, the question of reliance by reference to the, the fraud on the market theory, which comes out of US securities litigation. Yeah, thank you, Tim. So, so for many years, um, particularly when securities class actions became um, prevalent. Uh, many of them uh, never went to trial and, and certainly none had proceeded to judgment. Um, they would either settle before trial or they would settle during the course of um, a, a, a trial, but never proceeded to judgment. And invariably those securities class actions arose out of a significant event which impacted a share price. And they range from a crisis, um, it could be accounting impairment, it could be um, understating profits, et cetera, et cetera, where there was a, a real impact once the announcement was made uh, and, a, and a price movement. And so for many years, the, the plaintiffs uh, wanted to push, like you are at the moment, um, the, the arguments around the fraud on the market theory that had evolved in US securities class actions to uh, avoid having to prove uh, individual reliance, that is that a particular shareholder did have regard to um, the uh, uh, share price or more directly the representation or the lack of representation in acquiring those shares or deciding not to sell shares. But, but of course, that is a very expensive exercise for funders and plaintiffs to have to undertake. And so they really did um, argue for many years that there, we, that there was enough in our statutes, which do rely upon this concept of reliance and direct and indirect direct reliance on fraud on the market. And in 2019, in the Meyer class action, which did actually proceed to judgment, the courts, our Federal Court of Australia accepted for the first time in a very robust judgment that it is available um, and thereby um, making it much easier to demonstrate um, a, a damages claim by individual shareholders at, at, a, at an aggregate level, simply by demonstrating that either the representation that was made or the lack of representation that was made had a real impact on the share price. And so in theory, um, uh, because of the efficient market hypotheses, uh, there was uh, either the share price was undervalued, 
and, and therefore they, they were entitled to the difference between what it should have been worth and what it was in fact trading at. And um, that became a very sort of uniform way to reap the rewards from a, a claim and uh, made it uh, much more uh, viable to launch shareholder class actions um, in, those, in that context. And it, it is quite a seminal moment. And, and for 10 years plus, uh, we, we were having the very debate you're grappling with now. Um, but they will, the plaintiffs and the funders will continue pursuing that line because they know it's a, um, a very profitable uh, endeavor if they're successful ultimately in that regard. And, and John, I mean, you know, as we've alluded to, claimants are advancing market reliance and price reliance type arguments here in the UK in securities class actions. But what, what do we think about their chances of a court accepting those in a Section 90A FUSMA context? I'm sceptical, actually, as to whether the courts will accept that line of argument. Um, I think just sort of stepping back so our, our listeners understand uh, what Section 98 does. Um, it covers liability for, for untrue or misleading statements or omissions um, from information that was disclosed to the market um, via, via a, a properly recognised information service. It's essentially a statutory fraud claim. Uh, and as you've touched on, Tim, it, it, it requires proof by a shareholder who's bringing a claim uh, goes the, the uh, conventional um, analysis of Section 98. It requires proof that they relied on, on what they say are, are the misleading statements. So really, the investors need to say, yes, you know, we, we, read, we, were, we were influenced by the information that we're saying is misleading or, or the emission affected our decision to buy shares, to hold shares or to sell shares. And that's really hard because because most shareholders buy on price. Um, nonetheless, and and you know, in recognition, I, I suppose of those difficulties, exactly as as uh, you uh, and Nick have touched on, there is a lot of discussion around uh, the fraud on the market theory. Uh, it's something that you know we know claimant law firms and funders are are thinking about hard trying to push. Um, why do I say? I don't think it will work in English courts. First of all, I think it's really hard to square it with the with the wording of the legislation that we're dealing with. Uh, and that says that, I'll just read it out, a loss is not regarded as suffered as a result of the statement or omission unless the person suffering it acquired the relevant securities in reliance on the information in question. Uh, and at a time and in circumstances in which it was reasonable for him to rely on. So it's, it, it, the legislation, I think, is specifically referencing reliance on the information uh, and, reason, and more than that, in fact, reasonable reliance. So never say never. I certainly agree that claimant law firms, funders will continue to push it because of the, uh, the, the potential rewards they can reap if they do and because of the leverage they can exert simply just to try and drive a settlement through pressure uh, uh, tactics. But as to whether at the end of the day a court would accept it, if I, if I had to put my money on it, I would say they won't. Yeah, I think if I was also a betting man, I'd, I'd be with you on that one. I mean, I think what is interesting, though, at the moment is uh, how 
that this issue is being approached in the current securities class actions that are going through the courts at the moment from a case management perspective. I mean, just to set the scene for that point, I mean, in, in securities class actions, claimants often seek to postpone issues involving reliance and, and causation and quantum and limitation to a second trial. And they do that really for a couple of reasons from their perspective. Uh, the, the first is that it postpones incurring significant costs until the question of liability has been determined. And, and it also makes the first trial solely about the defendant's conduct. So it's obviously attractive from their point of view, but defendants obviously tend to resist those attempts to have a split trial. And one of the things that's often argued is that the claimant's witnesses can potentially be influenced by the first findings trial when preparing their evidence uh, in relation uh, to reliance in a second trial. So I, I think in that context, it was the, I think it was an interlocutory decision that we got in the, the G4S security litigation last year. It was interesting because there the court did order a split trial as the claimants wanted, but what they also did do at the defendant's request was set up a, a parallel process of, of sampling of the various claimant cases on reliance and they required that um, all the, the claimants in that sample provide the defendant with proper particularization as, as to their reliance cases. For example, whether it was said that a particular named individual reviewed the relevant published information and relied on it or whether um, the only evidence they were going to put forward was on, you know, more so on some generalized basis. It's going to be a, a key battleground, as I say, um, and will be very interesting to, to see how that develops. Um, just moving to uh, an, another topic, I mean, Nick, I, I think one of the features of having a, a more mature class action regime is that you, you'll, you'll have more experience in, in settling class actions than we do. I mean, it, that's obviously from a client's perspective, that the key thing is seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. And, and I think I'm right in saying that there was an empirical study done in Australia that tells us that, that two thirds of all finalized class actions involving a funder were settled. Now that the mechanisms for, for settlement are obviously gonna be different uh, between here and Australia. Um, and even here, they, they differ depending on how the claim is brought. But, but from the client's perspective, is, what, what, what can we learn in terms of how best to bring a class action to a close um, based on your experience in Australia? And that is actually the key question we have found over the years that the boards of, of our clients when confronted with a class action, that is the very question they ask. They're not sitting there saying, how long can we defend this for? It's more a case of ultimately, if we wish to settle, how do we settle this? And, and there are various ways one can settle um, um, a, a sort of a mass claim. But once the Federal Court of Australia or our various Supreme Courts are seized of jurisdiction in relation to a class action, um, one needs to get court approval to approve that settlement. And that mechanically involves um, uh, uh, demonstrating to the court that it is a reasonable settlement. Um, and the judge has to not rubber stamp, but literally has to be satisfied that the uh, amount and the, the admissions that are made and the damages that have been agreed to is reasonable given the, uh, uh, given the claim that is made. 
And mechanically how that occurs is um, one obtains a senior counsel's opinion, uh, King's counsel's opinion on, um, on the prospects. And that becomes a confidential exhibit that is provided to the judge. And the judge then gets a level of satisfaction that uh, there has been a, at least a view expressed at the highest levels on the plaintiff's side, or, or alternatively, alternatively, there's a, a an, an independent uh, opinion provided, or amicus, uh, a friend of the court who does provide that opinion and is satisfied, uh, given the quality of the evidence that the settlement is reasonable. Now that's the mechanics, and and I mention that because um, often these cases, as you've pointed out, that they do settle. And they often settle after a very large mediation. And sometimes it takes several rounds of mediation to resolve a claim. But there's two dynamics that occur in that mediation to, to, for this market to be cognizant of. And, and it is an unfortunate, uh, it's an unfortunate outcome. But the litigation funders are in that room. And invariably, um, they are uh, to use a, that expression, they are calling the shots. And yes, you have the plaintiff law firm wh whose duty is to the clients and to the group to pursue that claim, but ultimately the funder, and this is built into the litigation funding agreements, the litigation funder has ultimate rights in relation to a settlement amount. And, and regrettably, often what happens is they uh, built into a settlement their reward, their remuneration their profit margin. And, um, and of course, judges have criticised that, that often the costs, the approved costs, and the funding amount, the funding fee, um, is, a, is a larger proportion of the settlement amount that ultimately goes through the group members. Um, now, the, the difficulty with that is, um, they use that as a negotiating tool in the mediation. You will be in a mediation and they will say, well, we can't settle for 10 cents in the dollar because the court won't approve it. They'll criticize us for costs and they'll criticize us for, um, and by the way, we cannot get a King's counsel to sign off on that being a reasonable settlement. So those mechanisms become a, become a negotiating tool in the context of a mediation. And that informs, of course, when a mediation should be undertaken. And just like most commercial litigation, you try and do it at the point where you, can extract most leverage. Uh, uh, regrettably, that, that often happens when the evidence has already been filed so that you can walk into a, uh, into a settlement and say, well, you've led this evidence on liability, we deny liability, um, or alternatively admitted on a narrower ground, but then let's move on to damages. So what it means um, for, for our clients in the UK is with the larger class actions, they will take a long time and are invariably expensive because you have to to get the best outcome you need to um, go through the evidence and file your evidence to put yourself in a good position to be cognizant of that dynamic yeah absolutely yeah john i mean one of the things that we we've often spoken about recently is the the, the potential trend from a settlement perspective of the use of voluntary redress schemes as a means of settling class actions on, on a client's own terms. Is, what, are your, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, uh, well, thanks, Tim. I mean, it's as you say, it's something that we are seeing clients uh, more and more interested in. And I think it very much links with what Nick was just saying. You know, they're aware of 
the expense of litigation, the time it will take up and the reputational implications that it will have. Uh, and they uh, uh, are looking at ways um, that they might address um, a, a problem that might otherwise morph into to a class action. Um, so um, one way of doing that is to establish a voluntary scheme to, to provide for, for compensation, um, at least for, for monetary losses. Um, there are advantages and there are uh, disadvantages to that. Um, I think in terms of the potential advantages, on its face, uh, at least in theory, you, you might get some cost savings um, because a settlement directly with an individual means that um, the lawyers and the funders who, who would otherwise uh, be involved don't have to be paid. Uh, and so as Nick was saying, you, you sort of don't have uh, them sitting around the table, or at least they don't have as much leverage because uh, in one sense, because they, they don't have as many claimants. Um, it's also possible that if you've got a client who is operating in a regulated sector, as many of our clients are, uh, at least in some circumstances, they can look favorably on, on this kind of scheme. And if you get it right, it, it has optical advantages in, in suggesting a sort of almost pastoral um, approach to, to customers and how you're treating customers and an opportunity to sort of step back and try and redress uh, some of the reputational harm that, that might have been caused by the incident that led to the class action. Uh, but there are um, very real um, potential disadvantages that mean we always counsel our clients to think very carefully about whether they want this kind of scheme uh, and, you know, if they do, how they go about implementing it. I mean, most obviously it runs the risk of substantially um, swelling the number of claimants, um, particularly as many claimants will come forward, you know, if they can think they, they can get a payout without having to deal with lawyers or, or the litigation process. Um, there can also be really substantial costs involved in just sort of setting up, administering uh, a scheme, and in particular, based on my experience, just in, in verifying the validity of the claims that, that you're dealing with. But Nick, what, what, what's your experience of, of these kind of schemes in Australia? Um, there are very few statutory schemes um, to resolve mass claims. Our regulators uh, very early on um, prior to the GSC worked out very quickly that, uh, and that may become a feature in, this, in the UK, is that while ever they pursue uh, entities for breaches of various obligations and acts, particularly in the financial services and banking industries, that they could be left to prosecute the civil civil liability actions and to um, pursuing from a regulatory perspective, from a deterrence, a general and specific deterrence. And we're quite vocal 15 years ago plus in um, allowing from an access to justice perspective um, and, and indeed encouraging on one view, the private bar, particularly the litigation funders and the, uh, the, the class action law firms to take over the damages. So a dichotomy emerged where the regulators were quite happy to prosecute and do what they're good at and, and stay out of the damages side and let the private market work through that issue. 
uh, and particularly because they could justify it to the, the parliament on the basis that um, the litigation funding environment did encourage access to justice and, and just allow the private uh, claimants bar to, to, to look after that aspect. Um, and I think we see that dichotomy emerging across a range of regulators in different stages of their um, evolution. And, and most recently, you see that in the, in the privacy regulated field, allowing and freeing up the regulator to pursue uh, entities for data breaches, but not the compensation aspect of that, and allowing the class actions to take over that portion of it pursue a, a, to pursue a, what we call follow-on class actions. And you see that in the competition law space, you see that across all, all regulated industries. And so it doesn't really feature much. Um, with our post-GFC banking crisis, of course, many of the banks to stay on the side of the government and the regulators entered into voluntary remediation schemes um, to, to provide redress for um, for, for wrongdoing and financial claims that we tend to see in both markets. But that was purely voluntary um, and, um, and with sort of very light touch supervision by the regulators. Really interesting. Um, moving now to uh, a topic that we've, we've sort of been touching on as we go along the way. And I said at the start that um, friends aren't all one way. There are some things that have been happening in this market that um, have also been arguably exported to the Australian market. And um, particularly, I think, where that applies is the issue of data breaches. John, from a UK perspective, the story is obviously dominated by the Supreme Court decision in, in Lloyd and Google. And there are some things we're seeing that you can tell us about. But perhaps, Nick, you could tell us a bit about um, the, the, the status of the database claims and, and how exactly it is that the claimants are putting those. Yeah, thank you, Tim. It's relatively new in our jurisdiction. There were a number of significant um, <clears throat> alleged data breaches in September, October of last year. And so the class sections, there's two significant ones that have been launched um, that they really rely upon um, obligations in the various privacy acts for companies broadly to have the reasonable systems in place to ensure the protection of confidential information of customers. Um, that's a provision that is common amongst many jurisdictions, including in the UK. And so the target of the claim invariably is, did they have systems in place to ensure that that particular um, cyber attack would have been unsuccessful. So that's ultimately an issue that will play out in the class actions. Those particular matters are also the subject of a regulatory investigation. So the, the liability claim is effectively, uh, did you have reasonable systems in place? And did you take adequate steps to protect that personal information? Listening to you speak there, Nick, I wonder whether if that event happened here, the, the, the cause of action that the claimants would be seeking would be a misuse of private information, which is a, a relatively recent uh, tort that the courts have started recognising. It has in more recent times started being applied in a, in a, a data context, particularly as a result of what the, uh, the, the, 
the Supreme Court said in Lloyd and Google. Just on that point, Tim, it's a very good point you raise. There's a tort of privacy. It's just not recognised in our country. There's a statutory version of it, but only the regulator can pursue it. So the cause of action is based on misrepresentation or contractual or negligence. So you're absolutely right. It's, um, it, it's quite vexed. Yeah, well, it, claims. yeah, well, it's not not a straightforward one here. I mean, John, we've uh, we've seen a recent case um, brought against uh, Google, uh, Google and the crosshairs again for database claim. Do you want to to tell us about the the, the deep mind case? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's um, just just sort of stepping back uh, on this concept of, of the use and misuse of, of private information as well. Um, it's interesting, and uh, uh, Nick, a lot of what you say, unsurprisingly, resonates with what we're seeing in this jurisdiction. A lot of cyber attacks, uh, uh, deployment of ransomware, uh, and increasingly um, a, a trend towards the uh, those who are deploying ransomware, exfiltrating data, putting it on the dark web as a means of, of increasing their leverage um in in getting a ransom i think just sort of spending a little bit of time on the way the jurisprudence has has developed i think there was a high point uh of of data breach litigation in in this country about sort of two years ago where we were seeing whenever whenever one of these breaches were announced we were just seeing a flood of claims you know i remember dealing with one particular claim where you know we've been a brought in when an attack happened, um, they, the, our client announced the details of the breach to, to the market speedily. And we received the first uh, uh, claim or notice of claim on, on that day, um, which was you know, really striking. Uh, and that was followed by a lot of claimant firms jumping on the bandwagon, advertising on social media to try and grow uh, their, uh, th th their following and, and make themselves into, into the lead. Uh, solicitor when they were doing that. I think since then actually things have got a lot harder as partly because of the, the decision of the Supreme Court in Lloyd and Google but it's also because of some other decisions uh, where the courts have, have, have been developing the, the case law around this. Um, there are uh, claimants still still seeking to rely on it. Tim you mentioned the uh, the, the case that was brought up against Google and its subsidiary DeepMind uh, which was an attempt to sidestep, I think, some of the um, uh, difficulties that have been created by the earlier challenge by Mr. Lloyd against Google. But, but there again, because of the, I think, some of the peculiarities uh, of our, our uh, system and the requirement um, to show the same interest in bringing a representative action, then the court really had to analyze that on a sort of lowest common denominator basis uh which uh meant that they just the court just could not find uh that a viable claim existed uh to move forward and the claims for, for misuse of private information uh were were struck out uh and and that case proceeded no further but what is clear is um it, it is that the claimants uh claimant law firms funders haven't given up on this area they're continuing to explore um, the ways of bringing these claims, increasing reliance on competition, which is the one area where we do have a, an opt-out mechanism in, in this country and sort of seeking to refashion some claims in that area, which I think we will see more of. 
together with pressure from legislative change to, to introduce a, an opt-out mechanism in in uh, in respect of class sections generally. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I mean, I think the interesting thing about the, the database claims here is that they do all have to be seen through the prism of the same interest test in the representative action procedure. And it's even though we might have the potentially available causes of action um, today compared to a jurisdiction like Australia, it, it, when you apply the same interest test, it's just so hard to avoid the question of getting into individual assessment of loss. And I think that's just being the barrier. And as you say, John, it, I think there are lots of people in the market who are, who are now saying that it doesn't really make a lot of sense that there could be a specific opt-out procedure available for infringement of competition law. But then if you're the, uh, the victim of a data breach, um, why is it that your claim is, is subject to a different set of rules and procedures? So I think that's going to be a very interesting area over the next few years in this jurisdiction as to whether there is the wider reform, as you say. That's all we've got time for. Thank you for listening and be sure to check out our other episodes in this series on class actions. We welcome any feedback or questions. So do get in touch with any of us. Our details are on our website. To ensure you don't miss out on any future episodes, do subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. While you're there, please feel free to keep the conversation going and leave us a rating or a review. Until then, thanks for listening.